This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large at Recode. You may know me as someone buying put options on the Trump administration, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change, the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, joining us remotely from, where are you, Chamath? This is Chamath Palihapitiya, who is one of my favorite guests. Where are you? Palo Alto. Palo Alto. He's the founder and CEO of the venture capital firm Social Capital. Chamath was also an executive at Facebook between 2007 and 2011. But I've known him since he was at AOL when he was just a, a little puppy entrepreneur before that. I wanted to have him back on the show to talk about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting global economy and startups in particular, as well as Wall Street. Chamath, welcome back to Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. How are you? Good. How are you doing? You've had. I'm doing well. I haven't seen you in a while. I haven't talked to you in a while. It's been a year since we did that. Bitcoin last time. Bitcoin. No, we talked about mental health a year ago. Mental health. It was one of your most popular podcasts. That's right. That's right. I always like to have you on. People really enjoy listening to your Kara, I'm the only person you've done podcasts with where I've been in the top ten. It's true. It's above the above like the two. I've done two in the top ten. You have, you have, 100%. You are the best. And hopefully this one will get into the top 10. But listen to me. Talk to me about the landscape out there. What's going, what are you doing? First of all, let's check in on Chamath. What is Chamath doing? I'm sheltering in place. Uh, yeah. I've actually been sheltering in place for three weeks. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I didn't really understand the severity of this early on until probably mid-February because... As it turned out, I was in Milan on spring break. Oh, wow. I took my kids to Switzerland, and uh, then we went to Milan. And uh, we started to see the first few cases there. And I started to get really concerned that this was now clearly spreading beyond just a statewide lockdown in China. Mm -hmm. And so when we came back, we started to get our handle on what was going on. And then um, my girlfriend stayed in Milan an extra week. Wow. Okay. And her family runs a pharmaceutical business there. And they basically told us like, this is going to get pretty serious. And so she self-isolated for two weeks just to be completely safe. And then uh, by the time we were done that, uh, California went into shelter in place. And so uh, we've been home for three weeks coming up on a month now. Wow. And what made you worried about it at the time? That's, that's actually early for many people. Many the, people hadn't been paying attention until just recently. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to think about case counts or, you know, CFR or anything like that, or even the are not all these terms that none of us knew before, but now they're going to be seared into our consciousness. Um, but I did see the Chinese government react, and I thought, these are not people that overreact. Mm -hmm. If anything, these are uh, a group of people who have a history of underreacting to save face and then massively overreacting to make sure that they save power. Right. And when you put half a billion people into essentially a uh, curfew military state and you start contact tracing everybody using not just the government apparatus, but... Uh, cell phone companies and the big internet companies, they knew something that the rest of us didn't know. And so I just thought, wow, this thing is going to be a a tsunami that's hitting everybody. I didn't know the totality of it, but I just thought on balance, I was more afraid for myself and my family to keep them safe. Now it turns out that my focus is shifting very quickly to not 
the pandemic itself, although we should talk about it, it's um, the economic fallout of this is going to be probably 10 to 100 times the magnitude. Right. I think we do need to talk about that. We have a lot of things. Let's just talk about uh, how Silicon Valley is reacting from a, from a, the pandemic point of view. I want to talk about contact tracing and some other things that people are suggesting should be happening more aggressively and the worries about big companies like Facebook, where you'd worked and other places, how much information they have and how it should be utilized. So let's talk about sort of the attitude in Silicon Valley. You've been doing investing, you've been doing uh, SPACs, you've been doing all kinds of things. How has that shifted? I mean, the investing landscape is done. Mm-hmm. done. So it's done. done. What do you mean done? It's done. Forever? No, but for, um, look, I think that before people start to put money back to work, two things have to happen. The first is that we need to reach a psychological bottom in the public markets. We haven't done that yet. And then when we've hit a psychological bottom in the public markets, we need to hit a psychological bottom in the private markets. And we haven't even started that process. Those things will take probably nine months for us to get through it. And in that, I think that there's going to be a lot of really hard things that um, investors will need to internalize. A lot of paper profits have evaporated. And a lot of uh, allocate this startups. This isn't startup valuation. No, no, no. These, these are the people with the money, the hedge with funds, money. Right, right. The, or the sorry, the private equity funds and the uh, and the venture funds. All these groups that have been putting money into startups have been doing it on paper markups, mm-hmm. meaning you put money in, and it's sort of what I've talked about before, which is this Ponzi scheme here. Somebody else puts in money at a higher valuation. You mark it up. It looks like you're making money, and then you use that as a reason to raise more money from people. Now. Those people who have given you money are in a very difficult situation because their liquid investments have fallen in value by 30% to 70 or 80%. Their other illiquid investments are also now under severe duress, meaning the sophisticated investor that gave a venture capital firm money has also given money to public hedge funds, public uh, fixed income funds, real estate, private equity. Now think of all of those organizations. All of those organizations, every single one, operate on leverage. They take money, they borrow money, they put it to work. The first fallout of this uh, economic crisis that we're seeing because of corona is just the complete seizing of the credit markets. And when we figure out the totality of that damage, what it really is going to mean is that asset values have just eviscerated. For example, like think if you're, um, you know, I'll give you a simple example. Think if you're an investor in a tier one class A commercial real estate. Let's say that all you've ever done is bought fabulous, beautiful Park Avenue, Central Park View real estate, and you gave it to, and I'll use a law firm that I use probably the top-notch securities law firm in the world, uh, Skadden Arps. I pay these guys millions of dollars a year. They do an incredible job for me. Incredible. They're the best of the best. Well, Skadden Arps has been even more productive for me during corona. And the first thing that I'm going to do after this is all said and done, when I talk to the guys at Skadden, is I'm going to say, I'm willing to keep paying you millions because you've done a great job for me. But I noticed that you guys were as or more productive working remotely than you were when you were in your $1,000 a square foot real estate on Park Avenue. Why don't you guys just- What do I need that crap? Move move that garbage to, just just get out of the lease, cut my rates by 15% or 20%, and I'll pay you more. Which means commercial real estate is not worth anything near that. Right, the, I was thinking about that. But people can work at home now if and you, actually if, like it. If you owned REITs that owned restaurant- exposure or big mall infrastructure, those are not going to be the same. If you owned uh, private equity interests that needed capital markets and needed debt to make the whole thing work, that's no longer work. So when all of that sorts itself out, now that investor looks at venture capital and says, you want me to put more money into an illiquid property? The rest of my portfolio is off 30 to 50%, 60%. And so when that happens, the venture investor will feel pressure and then they will re-rate. So this is what I mean by we need to first see a psychological bottom in the public markets. That means 
equities, fixed income. Then we need to see a bottom in private equity and real estate. Only then can we see a, a, a bottom in venture. And between now and then, if you're out there swashbuckling around trying to do deals and pretend you're a hotshot, you're just going to get yourself fucking decapitated. What happens then? What is going on with startups right now? I think that people need to make hard decisions to conserve at least 36 months of cash. And if you're not doing that, you're not giving yourself enough of a buffer for all of this to sort itself out. So take the Great Depression or take any recession. For every month that you're in the drawdown phase, the part of going down, it takes two to three months to get back up. So if this takes nine months to sort itself out, we're, we're in month one. So it could be eight more months. Then it's going to take 27 months to get out. So unless you're giving yourself 36 months of runway, you put yourself in a position where you will be at the behest of the price maker. Right, whatever the valuation would be, right? Or whatever the cost would be. Exactly, and that's right. going to be hard money. Right. I mean, make no mistake, you're going to see recaps 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar. Last night, I saw Airbnb float this trial balloon that said that venture capitalists and private equity firms were lining out the door to give them anywhere between 100 million to a billion. And I thought, wow, those guys have a lot of courage. God bless them. But if it were me, I would think to myself, well, the price is at least 30 to 40% off. And that's just broadly based before you look at the specific industry that Airbnb is in. So there was some data yesterday where the the fifty percent in the U.S. off off. Well, the off. the yeah. supply has completely gone away because a bunch of people had mortgages. They need to meet those mortgages, and so they're taking the inventory off of Airbnb and they're trying to find renters. All of a sudden, the rental volume in Dublin alone increased by thirty three percent overnight. So you have all these second and third order effects that have to wash out before you can price the equity fairly. That's just one company. That's not to pick on Airbnb. So my point is every company has these second and third order implications. And so if you're not going to take the time to figure those out, you are more than likely going to misprice. So you, you would wait. You would wait. Well, you do what Charlie Munger says, which is you can buy now, but you need a safety, a margin of safety where even if you misprice it, it's okay. So, I mean, would I give Airbnb equity at 10 cents of the valuation? Of course, you're not going to lose money there. But if you're trying to get cute with valuation, you could be right, you could be wrong. And for me, for example, like look at, you know, the deal that happened uh, with Twitter. You know, the folks that put in a billion dollars into Twitter did it in a convert that yielded 6% at a 42 or $43 convert price. The stock is a mid-20s stock price and it could go down to the teens. Mm -hmm. Things change fast in moments like this. So that money that, that they put in. You do now. not get paid to be a hero. Right. There right. is no hero premium. There's only schmuck insurance and then looking and feeling like an <laughs> idiot. That's so it. Those are the only two things. Right, what would you do with Twitter now? I know you've looked at it before. What would you do? Buy low or what's the, you, now you put oh, in I'm the not, billion? I'm not going to touch it. Not going to touch it. I'm Why? not touching anything. Kara, not touch anything. Kara last year. Not, Kara, do not touch anything, Kara, by the way, last, physically. Job, last year, stop touching things. Look, at last year, I made $1.7 billion. Mm -hmm. I did one deal. I put almost $800 million into Virgin. I kept my Slack. I have three positions in the public markets, Virgin Galactic, Slack, and Amazon. By some fate or miracle, those things have not felt the same drawdown as everything else. Well, Slack is being used heavily. Otherwise, I, I just am, interviewed Stuart. Yeah, otherwise, I am completely in cash and I'm waiting. And I'm hoping to put it to work. And I think that this will be, you know, one of the few buying opportunities of my lifetime. But we're in the fourth week. Right. So when is the buying opportunity from your... And I don't want you to give away all your things. But no, if you, you, if you look at the Great Depression... There's a lot of uh, value there mm -hmm. in learning. And if you look at the great financial crisis, there's a lot of value there. Let me tell you what I've learned about both. So the Great Depression is instructive for the following reason. Number one, you had to forget what the cause was. And today, people still don't know what the cause was. If you take the Keynesian model, they say it's a demand shock. If you take the, you know, the, the supply side model, people will say it was a bank run of the banks. It doesn't matter. The result was 20 to 25% unemployment, a 15% reduction in GDP. 
10 years of deflation, okay? But you also had some good things. Roosevelt, the New Deal, and then eventually the economy started to get out, but you needed 10 years and then a world war. Mm -hmm. That's scary. Right. Then you look at the great financial crisis, and what you saw was a drawdown of 30%. 2008. 2008. Right. Then the market stabilized for about a month or a month and a half, and then the next wave of bad news came, and you had another drawdown. The market bottomed at almost minus 50% before you saw a rally, and that whole process took nine months. So what I would tell you is if you put the two together, there are some clear similarities. We will likely have the GDP effects of the Great Depression. We will likely have short-term unemployment of the Great Depression. And we will probably have the market behavior of the great financial crisis. And you put those two things together means that we are at the beginning of the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that people have to do is to deal, I think, with the emotional uh, upheaval and the realization around the crisis of health. But when you do that, that's just phase one. Then you can shift your attention to the second and third order effects, which I think will be one to two orders of magnitude uh, more perilous for the world, which are all of the fallouts when you have broad-based unemployment and economic distress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the much, much bigger problem that we have to face. And it creates an enormously difficult set of discussions that you have to have, the pragmatism around which you may have to deal with this disease, because the... The game theory now is the disease is entering its a phase where you have two paths. Path number one is if you have the discipline to quarantine the entire world for effectively two weeks and distance ourselves by six feet, every man, woman, and child, everywhere in the world, it would nip it in the bud. Right. But in the absence of that, you have to then do some sort of forced quarantine on a rolling basis. The other side of the coin, which now you're starting to see emerge. Yep is the scary pragmatism that says, get people back to work right away because right. they're starting to realize. Yeah, and if that means people die, that means people what, die. What, and essentially the underlying thing that they're saying is, well, what is the true cost of one life versus the economic impact of trillions of dollars and you know, mass unemployment and all of that stuff and bread lines? Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is a scary trade-off here. Right. But it's incredible 100%. that we... I was just thinking that. They're like, they don't care about the dying. That's what they're saying. They're saying, essentially, we're going to trade off a couple million old people for, or older or people that are just happen to get it. Well, I would, be, I would be very cautious. In fact, I would just be cautious in saying everybody has a confirmation bias in a moment of mm -hmm. panic. We all want to hear what makes us feel better. Right. The young want to feel it's the old. You know, the, the healthy wants to feel it's the people with comorbidities. And I think when we look back retrospectively, the, the truth will be told in history no other time. And it'll look like it touched a lot of us. Yeah, 100%. That's what I'm saying. It just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be sort of the luck of the draw kind of thing in terms of... But I think with, with the recent tweets by conservatives especially, it's been like, let's just, let's just throw the dice on some people dying. That's what I am, which I'm hearing. Because more will die of economic distress, I think, or more will suffer because of economic Well, I, th I think that, that that is true. Right. I think if you factor in suicide, domestic violence, separation, drug addiction, other illnesses, other illnesses, and you, you add that all together, and then if you want to look over a five or 10 year period, it'll be devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So therefore, let's get back to the economic thing. So there'll be no investment in Silicon Valley. There's all this, there's no money. to. Well, like I said, or? I think there's a lot of people with dry powder. I think there are people right. that are raising funds as we speak. Um, right. Again, I would just say that the people that are doing deals right now are mostly honoring their obligations of deals that they did pre-crisis. Right. So okay. there were a handful of things that we've committed to. We honored those commitments and we said, great, you know, let's do it. Um, but in terms of like incremental capital in a moment like this, um, it seems pretty irresponsible. Right, to put it to work. Other than telling your companies to batten down the hatches, and I've told people 36 months. 36 months, wow. All right, we're here with Chamath Palihapitiya, already really 
shaking me up. Um, he is the CEO of Social Capital. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. We're here with Chamath Palihapitiya, one of my favorite guests and apparently the most popular I have, but here we have it. Um, someday, Chamath, you and I are going to have a podcast together. Probably not. Um, hey. But let's, let's, get back, let's get back to the concepts you were talking about. So keep your powder dry and wait is what you're saying. And, and, and what about companies that are looking for a little extra money that were doing well and, and now you know, didn't raise money right then or had, didn't have, don't have 36 months, which is three years. Let's just make that clear of cash to keep themselves going. What do they do? They uh, are price takers. Price takers, meaning they'll have to take the money. The last three or four years, every company was a price maker. And, you know, from the modest, normal running companies to every illegitimate sort of like overheated startup with some, you know, crazy eccentric founder and the, you know, random demands and the, the eccentric, you know, food, all of that, all of that stuff you can't tolerate anymore. You are no longer price makers. And the people with the hard money are the price makers now. And every company CEO is a price taker, every single one. Even if you're the best of the best, you need to take a 30% haircut because you need to map to the public markets. And let me tell you something else. We don't know what the final bottom is in terms of what the economy looks like after this. And what I mean by that is there are some massive implications. We are tiptoeing ourselves towards socialism. And we're in a state of de facto socialism. So today, Kara, the date is March 21st, just to give people a day. Um, the Federal Reserve basically announced that they're buying and they're backstopping every single form of credit. Credit card loans, car loans, mortgage-backed securities, corporate paper, long-term corporate paper, treasury bonds— what that means is that the United States government is the de facto creditor of every single business in the United States that that's ever issued debt. Mm -hmm. That is a socialist regime. Yes, it is. I have no problem with that. But don't for a second think that all of a sudden, when we are trillions and trillions of dollars in debt, okay, uh, sorry, trillions and trillions of dollars in deficits, deficits, tens yeah. of trillions of debt, every state will be running $100 billion debts and tens of billions of dollars of deficits. Every county will be running tens of billions of dollars of debt, billions of deficit. Every city will be running billions of debt, hundreds of millions of deficit. Okay, that's what's going to happen. How do all of those government entities, when they backstop us from imploding, look around at companies and not tax them? How do they do that? How do they allow the top five tech companies to have a trillion dollars of cash between them? Like if you thought that there was support for a billionaire tax on the wealthy pre all of this, well, the good news is there's half as many, if not a, you know, 75 less billionaires than there were. Yeah. <laughs> but these companies that are going to run 50 and 60%, you know, profit margins with trillions of dollars in cash, the governments of the world will tax them. Yeah. What I think it means is that there's massive implications to the long-term free cash flow and earning potential of every company. That also then has an impact to the terminal value that you're willing to pay in the public markets. Mm -hmm. So how can you come and price an enterprise SaaS company at 20 times revenue? It doesn't make sense. 
Right. So my point is these implications need to play itself out and we need to have an understanding if you're an investor on what this means. So if the terminal value of a large-scale tech company running 50% margins is that their margins go to 25%, they're forced to either hire people or their uh, profits get taxed, and now their valuation is either halved or they need to quadruple to stay at the same valuation, then a tech company that is supposedly cheaper, faster, better doesn't have the runway to the same valuation that they had before. So you need a massive valuation reset on all private companies in Silicon Valley. Right. Right. Will that happen? Is that well? It has to happen. I mean, well, has it has it sunk in with people you talk to? Well, no, because I think we want to be optimistic. I think that this is the time to shift the optimism. We should be optimistic about the things that we're building, about how we can actually help, mm-hmm. and stop getting optimistic on valuation and profits because they may not be there. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think that you should expect Apple to have a quarter trillion dollars of cash on their balance sheet anymore. Mm-hmm. The government will force repatriate it. And the governments will take it. By the way, you probably completely missed this, but a week ago, during the middle of all this craziness, France taxed Apple $1.3 billion. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Why doesn't every country tax these companies a few billion dollars each? Because if what's going to happen in the United States is going to happen, which we've just started to do, it's going to happen in every country. What do you think the Eurozone does? They have to come up with trillions and trillions of dollars. Taxes are going up. They're not going to go up for people. So then the only, only suspect is to go up for companies. Fair so, point. But just yesterday, President Trump was talking about we're not Venezuela. We're not going to make our companies make things, first of all, under that defense authorization thing he's just signed. And then secondly, we're going to, we need to give them money. Senate is working on that. And obviously the Democrats are pushing back on the idea of this $500 billion slush fund is what they're calling it. How, there are still this idea that we have to save corporations so they can save the workers. That's no, no, no. The we have to, no, no, we have to save these corporations. But the U.S. people, the citizens of the United States, you, me, everybody else listening that's an American citizen should own these companies. That's what it means. You wipe out the common equity. Right. It's and then we're like the an, shareholders. Yeah. It's just like any other distressed investor. Okay, the right capitalist thing to do is to behave as if a capitalist would. If you asked me to step into a company right now and I had to be the lender of last resort, I would wipe out the equity and I would own the company for giving them a lifeline. The United States government is about to do that to the tune of trillions of dollars. The American people should own the equity. That's being capitalist. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that- We did that it, during the banking crisis. That's what we did. We owned it. Modestly. But, but we set a very bad precedent because by doing it for Goldman Sachs or by doing it for General Motors, we now created a, ah, it happened there, it can, should happen here. We need to own the equity of these organizations. And when we do that, we are becoming a de facto socialist organism. And I think we have to accept that. The other thing that, I'll have to, that I want to say is the other thing that happens in terms of long-term profitability is that profits were maximized when the world could optimize around efficiency. Cheaper, faster, better, right? Single supply chains, very, very brittle, but highly efficient, very fast, just in time. I think the world now is going to swing the pendulum towards resiliency. Right, and so resiliency, we have a lot of masks. We have uh, a lot in our... You need to have the ability to be resilient. That is expensive. It's not cheaper, faster, better. It's slower, it's more methodical, it's more expensive, but it's more reliable. Mm -hmm. And now that you have to price in these long tail black swan events like a pandemic, and by the way, we're going to have to price in pandemics now. And climate change. And climate change. That's a version of pandemic, right? You need to be resilient, Mm -hmm. right? So resiliency speaks to more nationalism, more nationalized economic output, more borders, more restrictions, You know, for example, a Patriot Act that touches biometrics. All these things eventually solely have to get considered. All of these things, from a capitalist's perspective, impact long-term profitability and the cash flows, which impact the risk you're willing to take and the risk you need to be given to own equities. All of those things will get figured out over the next nine months in the public markets. It has to have an implication in the private markets and startups. Who, who are the key players here? Is, is, it the gov- is it Trump or the Trump administration or Congress? Or who do you think is critical to this? Treasury. 
Treasury. The president mm-hmm. and the Senate. Okay. And Congress. I mean, Congress, broadly speaking, yeah. So when you look at what they're doing, what do you like and what don't you like for especially implications for innovative companies? I think that um, hard technology will be a winner here. Things that actually advance the United States in a meaningful way that's a shared mission will now have a renewed bid. So I think that this is a great moment where we go back to the quality of America when we were uh, in the middle of the space race. And I think that that is a really positive thing. Typical, cheaper, faster, better imitation-like products are kind of worthless in this environment. I don't think that they catch a bid. Such as? Such as? Most software. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it promotes resiliency. I think things that you can maybe peg under business continuity, so things like Slack and Zoom and other things, Mm -hmm. have real value. But the incremental random, you know, delivery product or the incremental random, you know, uh, last mile mobility solution is not what's necessary. So, you know, and I'm now I'm going to be very biased here because I'm speaking my own book, but, you know, we're going to rip apart the airline industry. It's already kind of finished. So why aren't we building planes that go supersonically and hypersonically? Why not? You know, I wrote in my annual letter last year, the top five tech companies have spent $600 billion on R&D in the last decade. What have they given us? Yep. It costs us $25 billion to go to the moon. A hundred odd plus or minus billion dollars in today's terms. We could have gone to the moon and back six times. Yep, yep. So there is going to be a renewed call for that stuff. Healthcare, I think, has a renewed call. These are lower margin industries, but the requirements there are more than ever. Remote learning and e-learning now have a huge bid. People, all these kids will be no worse off, I think, because after these last six months, in fact, on the margins, they'll be as or better educated. And we'll wonder to ourselves, why do we have to spend $50,000 for some random stupid degree from an Ivy League school? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think all of these things will come undone and the technologies that enable a shift to a more resilient population will win. I think you're right about the work, that you can do work from home. This is works just as well. It's slightly less convenient, but at the same time, not that bad. I mean, there are some centralized stuff that people do like to Kara, do. Kara, you know what's happening now? What? At least this is the first few weeks of home isolation. I think people probably work two to three hours a day, max, Mm-hmm. But I think in those two to three hours, they're, they're as productive as they were in the office. Yes, 100%. They oh, exercise. I, 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 Jamal, they haven't they gone go to the for, office for two decades. They so exercise, go they go for a walk, mm-hmm. they hang out with their family. Now, forced confinement, those last few things will decay in month you know, two and three. But what you're learning is that the world can march on. And a lot of these artifices... We don't necessarily need. We want them. But if they create unnecessary costs and they take away from the resilience of an organization. There are certain things. I think you're right. I think like people do like going to restaurants. I think they'll like it again. I think they don't like doing takeout and work. I don't think you need in. to go to the office. I don't think no, you need not to the have. Office. I'm I don't about think you need to have. Restaurants. Restaurants. Sure. People like going to restaurants. Sure. People like going to theater. People like going to movies. People and like going smart. to sports. Sure. Sports. People like going to sports and stuff like that. But you're right. You know, I've been the, I'm the original social distancer around work. I definitely hate going to the office. And I've always found it much easier. And it's just these tools have gotten so much better. So let's talk about uh, the tools themselves. So look, you've, Zoom has been doing very well, except for I just got uh, Zoom bombed the other day with pornography. That was lovely. Um, I know. <laughs> it was pretty funny, actually. I was like, oh, you could do a lot better. It was so good. It was a You're, conversation about feminism. And a, and a big cock and ball showed up on the screen. Exactly. It was, it was, it was actually a man's hand that's up awesome. someone else's ass. It was great. It was oh, great. I was with awesome. Jessica Lesson. She was flustered. I was laughing. Oh. Well, Oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Nothing like a good fisting just to bring it on home. Nothing, nothing like that. So in any case, it still works really well. This works really well. Uh, You know, Slack works really well. Uh, People are already very used to digital communications, texting and things like that. People are already well on their way in that regard in terms of work, of communicating in a different way. When you think about if you had to invest in three kinds of startups, what would it be? You talked about Homework computing, I guess. Um, I I'll give you my three green shoots. Uh, okay. The first is hard tech infrastructure mm-hmm. around transportation and around climate. That's number one. The, 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 that's like number one by two orders of magnitude. Meaning, I, I do think that we are roughly in a 
depression-like situation. And I do think that there's going to be, now that we're in a form of, you know, de facto socialism, we will have a Green New Deal. Now, it'll be called something else and whoever's in charge after November will call it something else, but we will have a multi-decatrillion dollar infrastructure spending plan that'll transform America. And I think that benefits hard tech and climate tech. Okay, great. Those are the two most obvious things. Mm-hmm. High-speed rail, high-speed air, clean energy. Autonomous cars? No, because I think they're, those, those will be consumer surpluses. Again, that's because of they run into the state, county, city indebtedness issue smack dab in the face. Meaning if you pave a road and you own the road, take San Francisco or New York City, you're going to start taxing the cars on the roads now. Right, 100%. And I've always thought you should. So, you know, these things will be break-even propositions or slightly yeah. money-losing propositions. Yeah, okay, um, so high-speed rail, high so, th- speed. so infrastructure, hard tech, climate tech, that's one big category. The next big category is healthcare. When you think about pandemic response, what we're going to realize is that we can't really deal with these pandemics in a real-time way other than quarantining. Mm-hmm. Because by definition, these pandemics are things that you have to simulate in situ in the moment. Right. So what do you have to do? This may be the first time where we're forced to look upstream at comorbidities and look ourselves in the eye and say, okay, we need to have the healthiest population possible to be as resilient, again, resiliency is the key word, against the maximal effects of pandemics. Mm -hmm. Because the solution will be to figure out who are the most at risk or targeted. For example, like you could have pandemics that at some point, heaven forbid, target the young. You could have pandemics that target specific gene mutations. You could have pandemics that target certain racial subcategories. All of these are possible. So in advance of that, we need to have a very resilient population. We need to be a healthy population. So coronary heart disease, diabetes, the things that are preventable, we have a responsibility as a society to eradicate so that the costs and the tax on the healthcare system and the economy and the broad population is as minimal as possible. Yep, good one. Okay. So maybe you need a sugar tax the way you need a carbon tax. I don't know. But but you're going to I think you're going to see a lot of uh stuff on that. And then the the thing after that I think is on education because the way that people will get put be put education back to work tech. Yeah. Well, you're just going to realize you don't need to go to Harvard. Fuck Harvard. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck cares? Like, you know, mm-hmm. we need to get people back to work. When you have 30% unemployment, like art history becomes a fucking minor, you know, dalliance <laughs> of the rich. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you can, art history. Well, you can take it Listen, and shove it up your person. ass when there's 30% unemployment. All right, okay, okay. All right. Move along. All right. Okay. You need to get people back to work, which means you're going to have to find very simple ways of educating people in usable skills. So for example, Kara, like we need to have a kind of a Peace Corps so that if you have the next pandemic, the frontline workers, no, Kara, the frontline workers should be the people with antibodies or immunity. And so you may need to train me how to clean a hospital and I'm signed up for that. Mm -hmm. Teach me how to do it. I'll get on YouTube, I'll learn, and I'll be in the theater of action helping because I'm not susceptible. So we're going to have to do those kinds of things. Interesting. And then the last thing, which is a foundational platform capability, is all of the network infrastructure that allows people to uh, work remotely, video, uh, collaboration, et cetera. Yeah, okay, those are good things. Now, in this thing, what happens to the big internet companies? Uh, how do you look at the Facebooks, the, the, um, all of them? I think they're important, um, but I think that they are gonna get put to a very difficult test over the next few years, which is that governments all around the world will essentially say you are now part of a surveillance apparatus that right. we will invoke. Contact. Yeah, contact tracing, all that kind of stuff. It, it'll be a pretty natural thing because you've seen how China has minimized the impact of what looks like a completely crazy pandemic because of the ability to tap the largest companies in their ecosystem as effective quasi-governmental organizations. So why hasn't that happened here? Do you think it's going Well, to because we value our individual civil liberties above the threat. And just like in 9-11, we needed something cataclysmic to happen for us to reassess that risk equation. And again, we are going to go through that underwriting. And somebody will introduce, as I said, a biometric Patriot Act bill, 
You as a person that goes to a restaurant, you as a person that goes to a sporting event will want to know that everybody not just had a ticket, but they had some kind of a badge that allowed them to say, I've been antibody tested and I'm okay to be here. Or that, you know, at a minimum, they've been temperature checked on the way in. You know, you, when you get into an elevator, will want to know that. When you go into an office, will want to know that. And so I think people will really start to think about the trade-off of individual civil liberties versus population health and safety. Things didn't went awry with the Patriot Act. It got out I'm of not, hand. By the, by the way, I'm not advocating it. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that I think that those are realistic. So a it, biometric Patriot Act. It, it enjoins the large internet companies who essentially are broad-based surveillance organisms today Right. To help. Quietly. Quietly surveillance organizations. Although it'll be put out sort of front and center by every government. Right. The second thing that I think happens to these companies is, is that the profitability looks too juicy and too luscious for highly indebted countries. And, you know, I wrote this in my, in my letter, but I think that the, the time was coming anyways for uh, trust busting these companies. Uh, what I would say is that some form of that is going to happen, but it's going to look in the, it, largely it's going to happen via taxation. Taxation, interesting. I just was interviewing Neil Ferguson. He thought it was going to happen via liability, that they will become liable. They will lose their liability protections. Uh, but taxation I mean, that, All of that works, but I think in the mm-hmm. short term, if you're, you know, France and Italy, and you just are a trillion dollars of debt, and Google, Facebook, Amazon... Microsoft, Netflix, Apple, each make, let's just call it two trillion, no, sorry, two billion of profit dollars in your country. I think you're going to tax them 30 to 40 percent. Right, 100 percent. You'd be dumb not to. You'd be dumb not to. We're here with Chamath Palihapitiya making a lot of a lot of interesting points about resilience, biometric patriarch. When we get back, I want to talk to him a little bit more about contact tracing and where that's going. And then I want some predictions from Chamath, the CEO of Social Capital. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're here with Chamath Palihapitiya. He is, oh, he just is a legend. Let me just say, he's an investor. He's done all <laughs> kinds of things. <laughs> um, listen to me, Chamath. Contact tracing. You worked at Facebook. They have all this data on people. They know everywhere everybody goes. Apple's the same way. They're all, they've all got lots of data on us. And can it be anonymized enough that we could, you know, use these for good? Or is it really just dangerous? No. No, which one? In fact, it, I think this proves that you can't have it anonymized because it adds no value. Right, right. That's I keep saying that. There's no such thing. That's what I... So I think the pendulum will probably swing in the opposite direction. So when you look at... If it was just the health fallout, mm-hmm. I think people would uh, maintain the status quo. But when you look at the economic fallout, and history is written on this whole episode, people will say, well, if we had the right surveillance mechanisms to invoke in a period of dire need, so when the, you know, only the president can evoke it under you know, an emergency declaration, but in those moments, all these companies, the telecom infrastructure providers, the large internet companies need to give all of their data, user data, or make it available in a usable way, I think people will say, wow, that was a trade-off worth making when you look at the trillions of dollars of damage we did to the economy. And so uh, 
it's going to swing against anonymization, Kara. Mm -hmm. The question is, are we willing to tolerate it? And I think the answer is we, we should tolerate it because it's for the greater good. But I think what comes with it is it is going to be somewhat obscene and vulgar for companies who are essentially a quasi-governmental organization to be mm -hmm. largely very profitable. Right. And I think the real trade-off is if you disgorge your profits and you operate essentially as a quasi-governmental organization, we're okay with you having this data. Because, for example, today the NSA has that data. This FBI has it. We're completely okay with it. Mm -hmm. These are nonprofit governmental organizations that protect our civil liberties and safety. And so when these things happen and we need to backdoor into Apple and Google and Facebook and Microsoft, we need to know that then, you know, it's not some shareholder, some activist, some, you know, random hedge or fund. Or Mark or Mark Zuckerberg making the Or him and his political ideology that dictates, but it's a set of rules that are defined by the government in the greater good of the American and the world population. Now, a lot of people I've talked to in government have said they don't, they're not against this, but they don't like this. A lot of governors I've been talking to, both Republican and Democrats said, this is great, but not this Justice Department, not this president. Like, this is dangerous in the hands of this I think, I think, I think, I think that's ridiculous. I mean— Okay, why? Uh, I'm just telling you, I've heard it a lot. Yeah, I, I, I think that people don't understand the totality of this disaster. And mm -hmm. um, it'll be the case that hundreds of thousands of people will die— um, but again, I reiterate to you, I think that this is the merging of the after effects of the Great Depression uh, and the Great Financial Crisis in one. And the longer we're in quarantine, the more likely that that's the case. And there is no time for political ideology about who you can and can't trust. Irrespective of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, two things are true. Number one is for decades now, we've been hollowing out these institutions. The smartest people for decades have chosen to not necessarily go work in these places. Decades across administration. And the second is in this moment in time, you need to believe in the team on the field. And you need to believe in the president. You need to believe in Treasury, in the Justice Department, in every senator, in every congressperson to get a solution in place. Hmm. Except Rand Paul, but go ahead, keep going. No, even Rand Paul. Even Rand uh, Paul. Even Rand Paul. Because right now, the only thing that matters isn't your political ideology. You know, for example, I talked to Senator Schumer two days ago uh, mm -hmm. in the heart of this negotiation, you know, and these guys are, you know, first thing I said is you guys are doing God's work, all of you across the aisle. Mm -hmm. And there is no partisanship there. What they're all trying to do is trying to get the right thing done. My, my feedback to them was like, this is the time where everybody gets everything they want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have to sort it out later, but everybody should get everything they want right now. Right. And right. the reason is because what we can't have is a sequence of half measures. And we have a history, you know, I've used this quote before, and I'll say it again for the sake of redundancy. You know, Churchill said, America will do the right thing after it's tried everything else. <laughs> it cannot be the case that we go half measure, half measure, half measure. This bill needs to be two to four trillion now, and we need to backstop it with another five to 10 trillion over the next six to nine months. But it will be a year's worth of American GDP. It will mm -hmm. double the debt. Right. And, and we just have to accept that. And so, you know, fiddling around at the edges over tens or even a few hundred billion in the grand scheme of things actually in that scale turns out to be not Well, although, you know, the political relationships are so frayed. I mean, I know you say they've been hollowed out, but it's never been like this. There, there's never been such a, like a, there's never been a leader more ill-equipped to deal with it and, and, and never been a, a group of people that are not getting along. I know you think they're getting along behind the scenes, but I think they're actually not getting along more than you No, think. no, no, I, I agree with you. I think the reason why it's gotten this far has been because of politics. I mean, it was pretty clear, at least internally within the White House, that in January they had a problem. In February they had a problem. By early March, we started to do half measures. By mid-March, we needed more half measures. We're coming to the end of March, and it looks like we're, we're not yet seeing where the full, you know, totality— And it's already of, going backwards. It's already saying we have to So let I, I agree with you, Kara. We're, we're politicizing everything. But my point is— you have to remember that, you know, every data point that we see is really a snapshot of three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And this is where they have to kind of figure out a line in the sand where they say enough is enough on politics. And if not, the good news is the thing that's not going to change is November the 4th. 
yeah, or whatever the date is, the Tuesday after the blah 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 first Monday, um, and you can you can you can express your displeasure or pleasure with how we're handling this. But right now, I've been appealing to every single senator that I talk to. Mm-hmm. You should get everything you want. We'll figure it out later. Get this passed. And what did they say to you? Uh, they're not totally there because I think that there are a lot of worker protections, at least on the Democratic side, that they want to make sure are there, uh, which still aren't in the bill. Not a bad idea. Uh, not a bad idea at all. And on the Republican side, there's uh, a motivation to try to preserve many of the mechanisms that we had in the great financial crisis in the hope that we are not stumbling towards a state-sponsored economy. And my advice to them is, you need to rip this Band-Aid off and realize that that day has passed. Right. You are the last bid. You are the owner of probably 30 to 40% of incremental GDP. The American government is already 30% of GDP. Right. So we are moving to a place where the American government will be the backstop on yeah. 60% of American GDP. And you just have to own that. Right. So how do you assess Trump's performance then in, in this? And whether it's good, bad, or what does he need to do? Well, it's trending higher. So I would say the trend is our friend. What I Again, the Churchill quote is really getting played out in real time. I think at first it was uh, a political bet. Mm-hmm. That gambit failed. Then it was a bet on you know, an early amount of data around CFR and case fatality rate and and are not the the virality, which was about the flu. That bet failed. Then it was about, you know, limited lockdown. That bet has failed. So I think we are now uh, one step from the end game. Mm -hmm. And I think the end game is a full and total lockdown in the United States for two weeks. You think they're capable of that? Because he was just tweeting the opposite tonight, last night. I think, I think that, uh, you know, he, and by the way, this is the other thing. He gets a lot of energy from the stock market. He mm-hmm. uses it as a real-time test on his approval. Mm-hmm. But I'll say two things about that. The first is that, you know, in a very dystopian sense, uh, this is the first time we've actually seen the real implications of the machines taking over society because... You know, most of the money is run by algorithms in the stock market. And so really what we have are a bunch of humans, mostly men, slaves to computers right now. And so if you're reacting based on what the stock market does, there's your dystopian endgame of what it looks like when, when the machines rule us all. The second is that the stock markets aren't behaving rationally. You know, they are dominated by a bunch of incentives that none of us really understand and that don't really map to anything that results in real value. Um, and so looking at that as a litmus test for what you should be doing, again, is flawed. Mm-hmm. So I would say the president is uh, doing a better job of realizing these things. I think that he is holding out hope. You know, Kara, that I am a big gambler. I play a lot mm-hmm. of poker, play a lot of blackjack. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine once said to me, we were at the blackjack table and I was clapping. And I was like, you know, doubling down on a hand. And he said, Chamath, clapping is not a strategy in blackjack. <laughs> and, uh, and similarly here, hope is not a strategy. Um, and so these guys will, will eventually act decisively. And I think that there will be a two-week moratorium on any kind of movement in the United States. And take it for what it is. Just have to do it. Yeah. Just I don't agree do with you. I think he will not do it. I think he has the attention span of a gnat, of a very dangerous gnat. Well, then, then I think that the trade-off that he's going to have to explain to the American people is the cost of a life versus the cost of the economic fallout and say, look, we're going to lose several trillion dollars of economic value or we can lose tens of thousands of lives and I'm making that trade-off so everybody get back to work who can. Lock down the old and the infirmed and the ones with comorbidities. You guys stay in quarantine until we have enough herb immunity or a vaccine. But those are the only two choices he has now. Yeah, I agree. But I think we're getting both of the worst case, which is bad economics and bad results in healthcare, which is you know the other the other thing we have to fix after all of this is all of the governance shenanigans that that led to a lot of this value destruction. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, a, a lot of the reason why America's moving into a state sponsored economy is because we have to bail out a bunch of companies who spent trillions of dollars enriching a few people mm-hmm. at the sake of Stock at the sake of doing. 
you know, the obvious things, which is actually having a balance sheet or actually investing in R&D that would make you more resilient. Uh, they did none of those things. You know, as far as I can tell, other than the tech companies and Berkshire Hathaway, nobody else thought it was a good idea to have cash on hand. Right. Nope. Now, the tech companies did it because they just couldn't find a way to spend the money. Right. And Buffett did it because he just felt there is no way to spend the money in a rational way. But every other company took literally every single dollar and put it back into the hands of board directors, the CEOs, and a few hedge funds and activist shareholders, while now the American population is going to see a doubling of the United States debt. Yep, absolutely. All right, I'm going to finish up Bitcoin. Shamath, we interviewed about Bitcoin. You were heavy into it. Does this help that? Or what's the, you know, people, all the Bitcoin people are way ahead on the... It does, but, you know, people have to remember, like, again, we're at the beginning of the beginning. So there was a lot of institutional and speculative buying in Bitcoin that got eviscerated in the first few weeks of a drawdown in the public markets because it's the same people buying on margin. All the speculative folks are essentially flushed and you have a lot of price stability around 3000, 4000, 5000. But I want to be clear what has to happen next. There is a ballooning of the U.S. debt, but there is not going to be a failure of the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. The Eurozone is going to disintegrate after all of this. Developing countries are in real trouble. Philippine debt, uh, you know, pick your random country. Uh, Guatemalan debt, Chilean debt, uh, Brazilian debt. All these countries that you think are interesting and worthwhile, they're going to have a sovereign debt crisis. They're going to have to move to U.S. dollars. So the U.S. dollar and gold is incredibly well bid for the long term. And so Bitcoin is going to play its role as an adjunct to those things. But what you're going to see first is the failure of the Eurozone, the failure of the Euro, and a massive sovereign debt crisis in emerging markets. When Hmm. that plays out, all the Bitcoin bulls will have their day in the sun. Uh, But until that happens, which is Again, two, three years of, of more price pain and volatility. Why will they have their uh, day in the sun? Well, uh, just look at the Eurozone. So there is no logical way when this is said and done that Germany looks at itself in the mirror and says, wait a minute, you want me to backstop trillions of dollars of debt to help Slovenia, mm-hmm. Estonia, a bunch of other countries that end in IA that I've never been to and mm-hmm. can't name? They're going to say <laughs> no. Yeah. Italy will need help. France will need help. And so Germany is the first because they will not allow their own people to suffer at the sake of all of these other countries. And though, so the Eurozone will disintegrate. There, there's just no uh, chance for it to save itself. Separately, when the supply side shocks come back and reverberate, because of the demand shocks in the U.S. consumer, into places that, you know, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, you name the random country, and they can't borrow in their own local currency, they're going to have to issue American paper at 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15, 18% interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a lot of that pain to go through. Right. And so the dollar, that's what remains. The dollar is bid gold is bid. And on the margin, Bitcoin is there. And the thing what I would tell people is like, why are you quibbling that Bitcoin hasn't gone to 16,000, 50,000? That's not today. Today is the fact that if you had bought coins at a few thousand, they're still at a few thousand a coin. You should be ecstatic. Right. Exactly. It hasn't lost value. Although, you know, when it gets up to 10,000, everything gets all funny, as you know. Yeah, they do. All right. Last question, Chamath. Will Silicon Valley be the same after this? Or do they, no. what should they do that's good? And that's, sec- that's the second question. But what will it look like in a year, Silicon Valley? I think that this is a huge boon for everywhere else other than Silicon Valley. I mean, one of the things that we realize is that we can do our job remotely. Why be here? So local network effects here, I think, are going to be under pressure. Two, the cost of living is crazy. Again, I wrote in my annual letter, I bought a company last year. I did two deals. I bought Virgin Galactic, 50% of that. And I bought a startup. And uh, it had raised $100 million, Kara. And when I bought the company, I wiped out the equity and I doubled everybody's salary. 
Mm-hmm. And I allowed people to buy equity with that money if they wanted to. Oh. And the reason I did it was I was like, people need a fairer, more humane way to live, and money matters. And my gosh, those people must be thinking, wow, what a great thing that just happened. Right, right? they've got the money. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, Unless you cut their salaries, Jamal, which you could do. Yeah, I haven't done that yet, but yeah, okay. I mean, you're right. Um, so the reason I did that in part, though, was because the cost of living in San Francisco is so high. Now that we're working remotely and we have to figure out a way to be productive, why not live where you want to live, where you can buy a mm-hmm. house and make, you know, you can buy a house for three, four, five hundred thousand, and it's not going to break the bank. You know, uh, why live in a city where half the inventory of rentals go to vacation rental property sites so that, you know, you have to pay $4,000 for one to two bedroom? None of it makes any sense anymore. Why don't I just live in Los Angeles because I love it more and just talk to folks and fly up here as I need to? So I think Silicon Valley. Why don't you? What are you doing in Palo? In fact, I mean, I think, well, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, again, after commercial real estate gets impaired, I think domestic real estate is going to be the next domino to fall in the real estate thing uh, after commercial and retail. And you'll be able to buy houses in LA for 30 cents on the dollar. Mm. Uh, what about San Francisco? Same thing? No, I think what's, I think a lot of people had a bunch of rental inventory that they're going to pull out of these rental sites and they're going to stick back into long-term rentals. I think rental rates probably fall by 25 to 30%. It becomes much cheaper to live here. But I think a lot of people will internalize that they don't want to live here anymore, that this rat race isn't worth it. Get paid a fair wage, live in a place where the cost of living is okay, the, you know, the food quality, the people quality is better, uh, and just be happier and live a more reasonable, serene life working on things that you care about versus this paper chase that in a moment like this means nothing. Right. Your right. options meant nothing. All right. So one of the things you did talk about last time, this is my final question. You talked about that idea of just like blowing things up and you made people mad and this, you know, in your, in your, in your personal and also your business life. How do you feel about those changes and what do you think people should do now? You're talking about the idea of you don't have to be here. You don't have to do this. You can live a different way. You should. I think, I think that we elevated a few um, people uh, and created our types out of them and said, everybody needs to be like them, otherwise you're a failure. And them was prototypically some dude in their, you know, mid-20s to mid-30s, who frankly, more than anything else, worked very hard, but also got exceptionally lucky in a moment in time. And we tried to institutionalize luck to everybody else, and a lot of people fell for it. And a lot of people, as a result, chose the path of trying to get lucky, even when it meant working on things that didn't matter to them or creating short-term economic stress on their family. And it turns out in a moment like this, that was really fucking stupid. Right. And so I think a lot of people have the ability now to reset and change. Who cares how much money you have in a moment like this? You want to be safe and healthy with your family. And you want to be in a place where you have a guaranteed, reasonable salary where you can have a good life and focus on what really matters to you. Because you can, you know, work from anywhere. Work where you want to live. Don't work where you need to step over, you know, people defecating in the streets and hypodermic needles in San Francisco. Why are you putting yourselves through that pain? For what? For equity that is worth nothing? For a salary where you could have, you know, lived a lot better somewhere else making the same amount of money? so that you can buy into some, you know, crazy rhetoric from some overzealous founder who was also living into a charade. I mean, it's all a house of cards. So be happy. Find the things that make you happy and do those few things. Live where you want to live. Do things that are really important for yourself, but also for society. That's what we should be doing. All right, Chamath. Chamath the wise. Chamath the Resilient. That's your new name. The Resilient. Yeah, Chamath the Resilient. Chamath the Resilient. That's why I'm Sir Chamath the Resilient. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. We will have you back when in, what is it? What do you say? Things will be three years from now? No, we're going to have you back before that. No, we'll be, I'll, be, I'll, be back, I'll be back in August or September to tell you that the market has bottomed out. <laughs>
Okay. All right. You come back then and we'll talk about it then. I really appreciate it, Chamath. Thank you so much for coming on Retail Detail for the third time. Thanks, Kara. As usual, it's fantastic. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Chamath, where can people find you online? At Chamath on Twitter. Yes, you do a very good job. If you liked this episode, we really appreciate it if you share it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.